Okay. <laughs> Far out. Well, hey, uh, so glad that you're here. Welcome to No Thanks But Yes, this freedom from addiction podcast featuring chill conversations with splendid people like yourself. And um, well, let's get started. We always introduce ourselves on this show. Who are you? Uh, my name is Elaine Alec, and I am Seal Finsiquatin from the interior of uh, Southern British Columbia. My name given to me on the day I was born is Tifkanit. It loosely translates into standing by water, given to me by my Tama on the day I was born, back in September 2477. Right on, right on. 77, uh, a very good year. I was 10 years old and I got to tell you, the music was good. And yeah, anyway, um, and you came into this world. So a much better year. <laughs> so um, I found you on Instagram. You know, I'm, I, uh, this, this show started with my talking to my friends and then their friends. And then I needed to meet more and more people and discover more and more people who are thriving in recovery. And I rolled up on your Instagram and then I went to your website and then I learned much more about you and I could not wait to reach out to you and hope that you would engage in a chill conversation with me. Right yeah, I, I never expected to meet so many people on Instagram, and I never expected to um, fall into such a huge recovery community on social media. So I've just loved meeting people and connecting. Mm, mm, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been helpful during these times of uh, physical isolation. I've very much upped my digital game. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, so uh, recovery community, um, do you identify as a person in recovery? And if so, what does that mean to you? Oh my gosh. It means, it means so much to so many people. I, so I identify as an alcoholic and as somebody in recovery. Um, I share a lot about um, not really knowing boundaries growing up because my mom got sober when I was 10 years old. And so mm -hmm. I was brought to AA meetings, you know, as a kid. And I thought everybody, you know, shared the way they did in AA meetings. And I didn't know what anonymous really meant. Like I just, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous wasn't sure exactly what that meant because every public setting I went to with my mom, um, AA roundups and gatherings and <laughs> everybody yeah. spoke about, you know, their lives. And so, um, yeah, I, I was involved in it. I rebelled against it. I hated it. I went back to it. Um, I move in and out of a lot of different spaces. Uh, and I'm one of those people that is take what I need and leave what I don't mm. in every, every place I go and really respect everybody's needs are different but um i definitely do identify with somebody who has really um utilized the the aa program for a lot of my recovery and now you know that i'm older and on social media starting to see like the different uh 
different programs that people have available and for the for different reasons why to attract you know people who may have felt excluded or that wasn't their space and so I found something in in all of the different communities that I've I've been involved in over the last few years oh there's one that's wonderful there there is something there is something everywhere of, of value. And I, I've been around as well and have my roots in Alcoholics Anonymous, that, that those are my people, uh, no, no longer fellowship with, with um, that community, but have moved into a, a, you know, kind of a different community, but they very much identifies a big part of me. And also I brought my kids <laughs> so when you were telling the story about going to meetings with mom, I was like, oh, my, my kids have seen some shit. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. So what, what um, kind of, you know, succinctly, what is recovery? What, what has it given you? Um, how, how would you, you know, describe it in, in an appealing way to someone who might want to come get them some? Oh my gosh. I like one of the things I, I can't remember how old I was probably in my late thirties when I heard someone say that sobriety was their number one um, above everything else. And I remember being like, Oh, how dare you say, how could you say that as a mom? Right? Like my kids of course are first, but then as she started talking about it, she said, you know, without sobriety, I wouldn't be the mom I am. And I wouldn't be the person I am without it. And I have to make that my priority. And so it is like my ultimate priority is my recovery. It, everything that I do, everything I struggle with has to be rooted in that. Um, otherwise, the chaos takes over and it messes up my life. And so it is for me, recovery is everything. And I have been so successful. I have found some of that uh, beautiful uh, serenity, you know, when, when people would say serenity, I'm like, what is that even like how, you know, I don't understand what serenity means. How is that even possible? Um, but recovery is everything to me um, and the priority in my life. Recovery is everything. I, I dig that keeping it as a priority, uh, um, sustaining your wellness and what has it given you it's given you it's given you order it's it's helped you be the mother that you want to be and it has helped you to find success and purpose so and then you say it's everything and that's wonderful you know when i do these conversations i look for um the title of the show in the conversation I got to tell you, I'm kind of leaning towards recovery is everything. <laughs> I am. Well, wonderful. I like that. And you kind of are probably the first person to frame it uh, as such. Uh, there are many different uh, descriptions and definitions. Uh, you, you are the 31st person to be on the show now and diverse pathways as well. So thank you. That was, I, um, I have not read your book yet, but calling my spirit back. That's exciting. Um, this training now turned into an inaugural conference, cultivating safe spaces. I'm excited to learn more about that. 
and um, your partnership with Alder Hill Planning, you know, this diverse group of, of uh, consultants, but more this concept of planning as a pathway to self-determination. All these things kind of piqued my curiosity. And this all leads into the question of um, what are you doing in this space now, thriving in recovery and uh, and what are you up to? Go anywhere you want to go with this. But those are the things oh. that piqued my curiosity. Oh, I could go in so many different spaces. But one of the things I'm really focusing on now is to, and this is I, every time I talk to my therapist, I write a tool out that I'm going to use until I meet with her next. And so my tool I'm using right now is to observe and not get sucked into the chaos um, and to not allow myself to get bored to stir things up because I'm a, I'm grew up in an alcoholic home and, uh, you know, being an alcoholic, I, I thrive in chaos and dysfunction and I'm comfortable there. And if I'm not there, I, I'm wondering, you know, you know, what's going to happen and how, how am I just going to be okay to be regulated? And for the longest time, I didn't realize that I learned how to be regulated. I thought I was numb, you know, like there's something wrong. I'm numb. I must, something must be wrong with me because I don't feel anything right now. I don't feel anger. I don't feel sadness. I don't feel pain. I don't feel stress, anxiety. And so I'm numb. What am I trying to shut out? And uh, my therapist said, maybe you're just regulated. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I thought, oh my gosh, exactly. Like, that's what this is. <laughs> Regulated. There's nothing to worry about. I can just chill and be okay. And so, you know, I've been, I'm, I'm one of those like all or nothing people. And I'm really trying to find like comfort in being regulated and not all over the place. And so, you know, I have two companies. Uh, one, I am, uh, you know, a partner in uh, for six years, and it's grown to over, you know, four, 14 full time employees, you know, across BC and Alberta. Um, we last year, we made $2.5 million in that company and paid wow. out over a million dollars in salaries to folks. Um, and then I also own my other company, Elaine Alec Writer Speaker, which manages the trainings around cultivating safe spaces. And I focus more on like trauma informed, decolonized trauma informed approaches. Mm -hmm. um, and working from that place of love and not that place of fear, uh, when we're doing this work and, and the book, it manages my book sales and speaking. And so last year, uh, I was three years in business with that company, um, as a sole proprietor and that company brought in $330,000, um, alone. And so, right on. so many, thank you. So many different yeah. things and, and wanting to write more and taking a look at where I'm at and figuring out what are my next steps and um, not wanting to make decisions based on fear. So not wanting to stay someplace because I'm afraid mm. that I'm going to be in poverty again, or afraid that I'm not going to make enough money or afraid that I can't let this go. And so I've got to do it all. Um, mm. And realizing, you know, it's, it's now I'm imbalanced because I'm not spending enough time with my family. I'm not spending enough time for myself. Mm. And so um, right now I've got all these opportunities coming up. Um, and my first instinct would be to try to do them all, mm. um, and burn myself out. And so right now I'm not making many decisions. I'm just observing. 
I'm observing where I'm at. Oh. I'm not going to get sucked into the chaos. Uh, and I'm just going to be okay with just chilling out for a little bit and just being okay with doing the things I want to do, saying yes and, and uh, you know, answering the call to places like this that support my well-being and nice. to foster those relationships. Yes. And that's important to me. I, you know, the big reason why I wrote my book was because I didn't want people to feel alone and never thought my book would be considered um, sober literature. Um, it's <laughs> really been picked up as sober literature by, by the sober community on, on Instagram. But it's just, it's about every, like everything about my life. And um, the one thing I share about calling my spirit back is in my teachings from my, from, because I'm first nations in British, British Columbia, mm. one of our teaching is that we have a spirit um, and alcohol has a spirit. And when you drink alcohol, the alcohol spirit takes over your body mm. and drives out your spirit for four days. And that's why you feel dead inside. That's why you feel like dark and depressed and, you know, not all there because the alcohol spirit has driven out your spirit. And so I had that dark spirit in me for so many years and I didn't have my own spirit in me. It was the alcohol spirit in me. And so getting sober meant I had to call my spirit uh. back. And so it's a, it's a book about calling my spirit back and, and the, how hard it was, but also, you know, hopefully some, some things in there to help people call their spirits back too. I, I have heard that concept expressed before of, of the, the alcohol spirit supplanting or evicting my spirit for a period. And, and, and you, but you, you talk about calling it back and uh, that's a beautiful image. Do you, um, up in your neck of the woods, do you have a great blue heron? Mm, you know what? We do. And it's so funny you say that because I was just on a call today with a group who are doing a great blue heron project. And it's actually called this great blue heron vision. Stop. And I thought, wow, because um, great blue heron has been one of my helpers. Me too. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Just as you were describing, um, you know, patiently observing, yet uh, standing your ground until it's time to move on. And and that was uh, something that I had learned from Great Blue Heron here at Noose River. I live next to Noose River in, in the uh, um, in the historical uh, and traditional homelands of the Tuscarora tribes is um i was at a job i wasn't sure i i should stay at and and i was out kayaking and i watched the heron just standing her ground standing her ground there's like nope and moved up river and and plopped down i was like i'm gonna do that <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna go <laughs> because there's no more fish for me here <laughs> I, one of the very first um, uh, mock-ups for my book cover was going to be a blue heron. Oh, gosh. I'm feeling that. Oh, wow. I'm trying not to get choked up and get it right here. Um, this concept of decolonizing practices for healing. Mm 
Um, one of my last guests, um, D Mauricio, and I think she follows you on Instagram. She's delightful um, from the indigenous people of Guatemala living in Mexico right now. And, and we talked about decolonizing um, sobriety and wellness. And you talk about cultivate um, decolonizing practices for healing. I uh, can you want to talk more about what that yeah. means to you? Yeah, one of the things like I, in my trainings that I share is that, you know, everybody has been colonized. And when I think about what does colonization mean to me, it means, you know, colonized um, practices are built on fear and control. And so every policy, every law, every process, all of the rules we have um, are built on fear and control to control people. Um, and so to decolonize, we have to do the opposite of that. And so how do we start to make decisions and create laws and rules and policies and process that are built um, in trust and fear, or trust and faith and love? And so for me, colonial ways are built on fear and control, and decolonial ways are built on trust and faith and love. And so... So, you know, all of us, you know, have been raised in that fear and control from the moment we set foot in school, you know, where shame-based practices have been used to get kids to be, you know, put in place to strive for perfection, to, you know, be afraid to have the wrong answer and to be shamed if they didn't think like everybody else. And so all of us humans have this built into us. And and so to, to decolonize is for everybody to, um, you know, start finding ways to shift the system to promote trust and faith and love. And so, you know, I really focus on that piece because I even think of like healing practices and therapy and like all of these rules put in place and, and the idea that we are responsible for this person's healing, like as a helper mm. or a healer. I'm responsible for your healing. I'm responsible for your triggering. I'm responsible and that I have the power to fix you. And if I don't fix you, it's my fault. If I leave you in a certain state and something happens, it's my fault. And I could be penalized or charged or sued for. And so mm -hmm. then I come into the space working from a place of fear. And when I yes. work from a place of fear, then I try to control and controlling is oppressing. And so you know, we, we start working from this fear-based place. And so when I step into spaces now, um, it's all about trusting myself and trusting that I will know how to deal with something when it comes up. I will have the instinct to do things in a good way from a place of love. And if I don't, that somebody else will. It doesn't have to be just me, that I can rely on other people to help yeah. cultivate a community to support somebody in their healing and so I'm not the almighty one that's going to heal and fix everybody that it's like that humility um, and working from love. And if I can love and trust and have faith in myself and my instinct, then I can have love and trust and faith in other people and their instincts. And oh. so that's for me, decolonizing practices. You, you know what you you've just answered a profound question that I have been seeking. It is we I, I, I am, uh, I began my career in, in peer-based services and then became, you know, in, went into clinical practice. And, and now I'm doing uh, 
education and training and technical assistance. But one of the issues is that when, when we are trained to be healers, we are taught this ideal that the individual with whom we are working has the answers within them, that it be a client-centered approach, that we trust them. And that becomes the ideal, but I've never seen it implemented. And, and, and due to um, you know issues around stigma and stuff, I've, I've not often met you know, helpers in traditional Western spaces that, that truly believe that their patients, clients, participants have that within them. And, and, and you're saying that uh, this trust, faith, and love of self is a stepping stone to that trust, faith, and love in others. That this is big for me. I'm, I'm, it may have been a, <laughs> an elementary observation of yours, but it, it, is, it is an answer I've been seeking for some time. Wow. Brilliant. Uh, lovely, lovely, lovely. So um, cultivating spaces conference coming up in June up in BC. I looked over the website and it's, I guess in part kind of talking about, you know, doing what we were just talking about on an individual level, on a organizational level and systems. Do you, did you want to talk about the conference? Yeah, yeah. So it was um, two years ago, I started the training um, cultivating safe spaces. And um, I use cultivating and not create because I don't believe I create safe spaces, I can't guarantee them, but I can cultivate them by using protocols and, and having other people understand what those protocols are. So we can all cultivate that safe space um, for each other and with ourselves. And so I, I started getting a lot of requests to do this training. Um, almost every day I get requests to do this training, whether it's with governments and industry mm-hmm. and companies or frontline workers and doctors and, you know, so many different people to do this work to shift systems um, because it's about shifting the system and being uh, easy on people, hard on systems. Ooh. And that's my focus in the work is it's like, as I do this work in decolonizing and reconciliation and healing is that we're going to be hard on the systems and easy on people, soft on people. Um, and so this work has just blown up and uh, I realized that I needed to train other people to do this work. And so I started training other cultivating safe spaces facilitators. Um, and I'm even decolonizing the practice in which I do that is that I, it's not like a pyramid style business. It's once I teach them, it's all theirs. They can use it any way they want. I don't want anybody to ever come back and say, well, Elaine does it this way because everybody's going to learn things and teach them in different ways. And, and it's not going to be the way I tell them to do it. It's the way people feel like they should be doing it for themselves. And I tell people they don't even have to pay for my training if they can watch Uh, all my videos and read my book and figure out how to deliver a training like this on their own, then they can do that. I'm not going to come sue them um, because I believe in uh, this training and how it will help shift systems and help the, the ultimate is for people to learn, to understand self, to love self, to trust in self, to show up, to be their best version um, in the world. And that's like one of the biggest passions of mine is to helping people call their spirit back so they have confidence in who they are Um, because when we have that then we don't have people trying to take power from others um, and hurt others and so I now have like 28 certified cultivating safe spaces facilitators Um, they're all across Canada I have uh, one in Arizona 
um, and one in uh, Washington state. And they're all in different spaces. I have one facilitator who's training the Ontario police force in, in Ontario, Canada. I have somebody who's focusing on the arts community. I have someone who's focusing on university uh, academia. And so there's people utilizing this training in, in the places that they're passionate about. And so this conference is a way to showcase all of the work that they're doing um, in their practices um, and to uh, introduce the framework to people and to just be in space with like-minded people so that they can support each other, work with each other, um, and find ways to bring this into the different pieces of work that they're doing. So it's going to be the first time like our facilitators are going to meet in person because it's all been virtual. Wow. June 16th in, mm-hmm. in BC. Yeah. Kamloops, British Columbia. Yeah. Kamloops. It's really hot in the summer. It's beautiful. And <laughs> folks can find out more about it at elainealec.com. Yes. Very cool. The cover photo for the conference is absolutely gorgeous. A big body of water, rolling green hills. I've ne- never been to Canada. Oh. Uh, oh. You have to come. I just I got would. back from Arizona a couple of weeks ago. You have to come to Canada. I do love Arizona very much, for sure. Um, wow, brilliant. Okay, well, that's um, you know the book and 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 the uh, the training and the conference. That's what you do and and what you believe and 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 all that stuff. But now we're talking about having some fun, you know. And I know that there's. <laughs> often intersection in, in our work and our play and in our self-care and our work. And, but tell me what's good with you. What, what do you do for fun up there in BC and thriving in recovery and getting goofy? My husband and I talk about that all the time because I am a processor and a thinker and my husband is a processor and thinker. And we just talk about really deep, deep stuff. And we talk about systems thinking and, you know, um, how, you know, just what we're actually doing to contribute to the world in a good way. Um, And so we're not the type of people who like, we don't, we've got the like straight face all the time, right? Like we don't, when we're excited, this is me excited. When I'm sad, this is me sad. When I'm having a good time, this is me having a good time. Like there's no, my, I don't know how to like be fun. But one of the things that, you know, I start learning to do things with my kids that they think is fun. It's not fun for me at all. Um, but I love being, um, I love being out uh, on the land in the mountains. Um, I have loved going and spending time uh, at the lakes with my kids. Um, and that is really fun, you know, for me. I, I enjoy myself doing that and uh, letting go because you know, for the longest time, I couldn't do that. I couldn't give myself permission to have fun. And so last year was the first time where I felt like uh, I spent time with the kids and it was fun. And I felt like, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't like, I, you couldn't tell by looking at my face, <laughs> I was enjoying myself with my kids and, and letting myself just have that. And that took me 40 something years to get there. Right. So, that? yeah, but that's fun. Just being, being outside and on the land with my kids. Oh, brilliant. Well, I think we're having fun now. 
person. Yeah, I know. I, it's Stuff like this is fun for me. I don't, most people might not think it is. I love the talking to people and talking yeah. about things like this. It's like, it does, it brings me joy. And yeah, so. ditto. I, I picked up this hobby during some peak pandemic time and I was like, I need, I need something. And this turned out to be that good, good medicine. So great. Well, um, we're at that time where we drop the mic. And if you have any final message for, for listeners. Oh, I just, you know, one of the things I like to share, uh, especially with people who are maybe just starting in recovery or, or, you know, questioning, you know, whether it's something that they want to do. The best thing that I learned about recovery um, is that, I didn't actually have anxiety. I had feelings. And one of the things about that was like, I would get these anxiety attacks where I couldn't breathe. And I would like have those panic attacks. And one day a friend came by and put his hand on my shoulder. We were at a funeral and I was feeling anxiety and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you know, it's okay to cry. Mm. And as soon as he said that my body relaxed and I just cried. And after I cried, I could breathe again. The anxiety was gone. And so I was like, now when I feel anxiety, I'm like, oh, this is a feeling. I need to cry. I need to laugh. I need to be angry because the, the drinking and the drugs and the pills was all about me numbing and stuffing the feelings. And I, so I didn't know how to feel them. Mm -hmm. And so I had to learn to trust my body when it was anxious and, and clamming up like that, that trust my body, let it go. Whatever's going to come is going to come and that I'll be okay. And I'll be able to breathe after. And so since I've uh, allowed myself to feel and cry um, and have joy um, and be excited for myself, um, I have not had that anxiety. Um, and so even like in the beginning, my anxiety hit the sad feelings and the crying and the tears. And then as I got more into my sobriety with the years, I learned that my uh, anxiety was also joy. My, my body was trying to conceal the joy and that I had to learn to give myself permission to feel the joy. So I, I love to share yeah. that. Oh, that is solid. Trust yourself, have faith in yourself, love yourself, feel the feelings. I'm taking that home. It's, it's good advice for me. Well, it's been a little slice of heaven. I deeply appreciate you saying yes and, and hanging out with us. Thank you. All right.